Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Changes. It's me, Annie McManus. It is so good to be back with a whole new host of conversations about change for a whole new year. I trust you're well. If you're new to the podcast, it's all in the title. We base the conversations around the word change and we ask each of our guests about the biggest changes that have rocked their lives in childhood and in adulthood and also the changes they would still like to make for their own lives or the world around them moving forwards. I have found them incredibly, incredibly rewarding and it's so lovely to know that you guys are enjoying them too. If you ever want to get in touch and suggest guests for this podcast to tell me anything about how you feel about the conversations you've heard, please do. You can hit me up on Instagram. I'm on there as Annie McManus. Let's begin a whole new series of changes with our first guest. From the outside, Elizabeth Day has an indisputable success story. She is a manifestation of hard work and remarkable cleverness. Everything she has done, she has excelled at, and not just excelled, but won accolades for. Elizabeth Day is an award-winning journalist and author and broadcaster. She got a double first in history at Cambridge University, and then in her early 20s, she won a British Press Award uh, for Young Journalist of the Year. She's written for a whole host of publications from The Telegraph, The Times, The Guardian, New York Magazine, Vogue, Grazia L, The Pool, Vanity Fair. She won the Rising Star Award at the 2019 British Podcast Awards for her incredible podcast, How to Fail. And she has written five novels, a memoir, How to Fail, Everything I've Learned from Things Going Wrong, and a handbook called Philosophy. Her latest novel is called Magpie. It was published in September 2021 and became an instant Sunday Times bestseller. She was also a judge for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2021 and presents on Radio 4's Open Book and Sky Arts Book Club Live. She's a busy lady and extremely successful, as you can agree. So how did Elizabeth Day end up dedicating such a big part of her time and professional career to the theme of failure? We're going to find out in this podcast and also how Elizabeth's relationship to herself, the women around her and failure as a theme has changed in the course of her adult life. Enter the podcast, Elizabeth Day. I'm going to start with a quote of yours and I hope this isn't too cringy for you to have to listen to this, but it's so perfect for this podcast. So I learned that if your life is not how you want it to be, then it is never too late to change that life. You just have to be brave enough to take the leap over the side. It will panic you and make you scared. But once you allow those feelings to subside and once the vortex calms, you will rediscover yourself and find that the world is large and beautiful and offers an endless opportunity to do different things. Elizabeth Day, what is your relationship to the word change? 
That's such a profound question. And thank you for starting with that quote. And it wasn't too cringy. Because I still stand by it. (laughs) It would be awful if I was like, actually, I've changed my mind since I've written that. (laughs) Um, But I think for a really long time in my life, I was scared of change. And I don't think that's an original thing to say. I think transitions can be really knotty and challenging and unsettling. And then... I know we're going to go on to talk about this, but my life imploded in spectacular fashion in my mid-30s, where everything I had thought I would want or everything I had thought I would have by then went out of the window. And even though I feared change, I had to get really, really comfortable with it and I had to get good at it. And that's the point that I realised that within every change, there is also an opportunity to do something differently or to carry on doing the same thing but with more intention because Mm. actually life has thrown you this opportunity to reassess so now I feel that every change is an opportunity and I actively try to embrace it and not to be scared of it anymore um and obviously your changes have led you to doing the most incredible things like how to fail for instance you know the podcast which is you allowing people to feel okay about the things that go wrong in their life and not just allowing them, but taking out the fails and exhibiting them and exploring them and dissecting them and figuring out why things happen. The beautiful irony of that is that a podcast about failure has become this like incredible success uh, for you and, and for the listeners of the podcast as well. How's it all going? How's How to Fail going and feeling for you? I think actually the way that I think about failure is is similar to the way that I think about change in that when you realise you can withstand something and you have survived something that went wrong or something that seemed so overwhelming at the time, it yeah. actually makes you realise how resilient you are. And so How to Fail would never have come about had I not experienced what I perceive to be a, a lot of failure in my life. I should caveat all of that by saying I'm immensely privileged and white and middle class. And I also failed because everyone does, right? <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and there were certain parts of my life that were difficult. And mm. had I not had that experience, I wouldn't have started the podcast and I wouldn't have had the enormous gift of feeling known by so many listeners. And I don't know if you feel this too, Annie, because mm. I know your background w- was in radio as well. So you probably mm. had an element of that already. But for me, it was the first time that I was being fully myself and fully vulnerable in a public sphere. And the only reason I felt able to do that is because I didn't think anyone would listen to the podcast. It was, just, <laughs> it was a sort of passion project for the first eight episodes. I was like, I just put them out there because I believe in it and that'll be that. Yeah. And then to find that that resonated with people and that it grew and grew and grew and gathered its own momentum was amazing for me because I felt accepted Mm. actually for the first time in my life. And it had taken me almost 40 years to get to that point. But I love it because it's an immediate shortcut into all the stuff I'm interested in talking about. When I sit next to someone at a dinner party not that I've been to one of those the last two years but in the olden days in the before times I'm I'm always interested in finding out you know about your childhood um, me too straight in yes that's what I want to talk about and so Mm. podcasting anyway and also then talking about something that is a shortcut to vulnerability like failure or changes is just completely 
my passion and it's all about that force of human connection. So I've really enjoyed it and so many opportunities I could never have imagined have come about as a result of it. Mm. It's going well. It's partly going well because I still feel it's authentic and has integrity because it's still coming from a place of honesty. Because I Mm. do feel that podcasting offers a confessional space. You know, a lot of what drew me to failure as a topic is my own journey with fertility and my own desire to have a child, which hasn't happened for me yet, but Mm. has led me to very interesting places and to meet extraordinary people. And when I started out on that whole journey, which I hadn't really realized was going to be a journey when I did my first round of IVF, it felt like hardly anyone was talking about it. And I felt very isolated and alone. And now I'm in a position where lots of people share their stories with me. And I feel I've done something of meaning to enable that to happen. And Mm. it's a virtuous circle for me because then I again feel connected and less alone. And so it's this Mm. really great two-way process that I'm very very grateful for Mm. and having also just finished your book Magpie which I know was kind of born out of some of that difficulty that that you were talking about there just I'm in awe of that book and how you managed to write that book that book in (laughs) lockdown because it's so intricate and so precisely planned like just the level of kind of the layers in it I just read it and was like I cannot believe that you wrote this in like the brain frog years of lockdown I'm just so impressed and I'm so impressed anyway but if you're listening you must get Magpie um, Elizabeth's book it's so excellent honestly I really loved it Oh, that's so kind of you. But can I just say, that's that's really lovely of you. But my coping mechanism during lockdown was to throw yeah. myself into work because I don't have children, therefore I wasn't homeschooling. Yeah. And I think I went slightly too far into one extreme. And then post-pandemic, I'm going to have to like whittle back the things that I do. But honestly, <laughs> I, it was a coping strategy. I got into a flow mm. of writing a bit of Magpie every day. And thank you for having read it, but you'll know having read it that so much of it takes place within the four walls of the same house. So there's a yeah. feeling of claustrophobia, which wasn't totally, that hard actually, yeah. for me to imagine. <laughs> yeah, Wow. I never put that together with your context of being in lockdown. It makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, let's go to the childhood. Come on, let's do this. Um, So there's three questions that we always ask our guests on changes. And the first one is the biggest change that you went through as a child, Elizabeth. What was that, please? The biggest change I went through as a child was when, aged four, my family moved from Epsom in Surrey to the north of Ireland. And we moved to just outside a little village called Claudie, which was about half an hour from the city of Derry. And we lived in the middle of the countryside and I went to school in Derry. So I'm so grateful to the fantastic show Derry Girls (laughs) for explaining my experience to a whole new audience because I was four, my older sister was four years older than me and it was a really unmooring experience we were moving across the sea and it was still part of the united kingdom but it felt very very different because at the time in 1982 northern ireland was still going through what effectively was a civil war but it wasn't talked of in those terms Mm. and to speak with an english accent as i did and my family did was to mark you out as an outsider and in certain quarters the enemy And in Derry of all, like of all the cities, Derry being, you know, kind of so heavily Catholic. 
Yes. Yuck. Derry was intense and there were there were so many wonderful aspects to it you know the the countryside in in that province is so beautiful the beaches are incredible we live very close to Donegal and and some of it I'm only just coming to terms with I think aged 43 where Mm. I got very used to military checkpoints on the way to school bomb scares in the local shopping center the Richmond center would suddenly be shut down and you'd have to get out um Instead of a bogeyman, I thought of a man in a balaclava underneath my bed. All of that stuff. It was manageable at primary school. I had really nice friends and it was a very small school. But when I went to secondary school, I actually went to secondary school in Belfast. And it was quite a brutal experience because I think children of that age are less forgiving of difference. And so that became a lot harder. You know, Belfast we were up the road from the Europa Hotel, which is the most, until recently, had the dubious distinction of being the most bombed hotel in Europe. Yeah, Yeah. And I got very used to kind of walking to the coach station and walking past shells of bombed out cars. And that just was part of our daily reality. Wow. So I went to Queen's University and lived just up the road from Methody. Yeah, so I spent three three years in Belfast and my mom is from up there as well. But, and I had friends from Derry who are still friends now. And Derry is to date one of my favorite cities in the world because of the people there. Yeah. Like they're just sensational people. Derry Girls is a true reflection, I think, of the people. Definitely. Um, the humor yeah. is unparalleled. Oh There's no humor like Northern <laughs> Irish humor, I think. And I think something to do with, you know, their history and their reality, they go like a shade darker. Totally agree. I totally agree. And actually, when I wrote my first novel, my mother read it and was like, you're very dark, aren't you? And, <laughs> and again, like, I wonder if that comes from that. Like, I'm not scared of exploring darkness in, in yeah. humor as in life. And I mean, talk about just the normality of growing up around that, how strange that is. But then just the Englishness on top of that. So you mentioned that kind of feeling of being othered. Like, A, you've you've come there. It's a whole change geologically, new people, new schools. But then you are standing out because of your accent as well. Yeah. And did that carry on then through, as you say, to secondary school? Yeah. Yes, it did. And it actually carried on throughout a lot of my adult life. I hated my voice. I hated my poshness, like that I sounded posh in that context and I wasn't. I really didn't like the fact that someone could have an impression of me from hearing me speak and that I felt it would be totally the wrong impression and that it would make them feel negatively about me. And Mm. actually talking about podcasting again, one of the unanticipated side effects is that sometimes people are kind enough to say that they like my voice on the podcast and that's been so that's just been like really emotional for me yeah (laughs) to be able to claim my voice and my accent in a way I mean definitely in secondary school I became a lot quieter a lot more self-aware and less self-confident as a result Mm. and it took me quite a while to sort of build that back up again And what did living in Ireland afford you in terms of a perspective of England? As you say, it's all part of Great Britain, but it feels very different. And it is very different in Northern Ireland. Did it make you think of England differently? Did you feel like another there when you came back? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. So I was really unhappy in my Belfast secondary school, left halfway through the year. Right. Was lucky enough to get a scholarship to a boarding school in England, got sent there. Now, I had left England aged four. I was now 13. So I didn't feel at home there. But as soon as I walked through that school's doors, I was accepted because I sounded right. And it was so fascinating because I was like I don't know the rules of this country like I don't understand what I'm doing here but no one questioned my presence there purely because of how I spoke which was the very thing in Ireland that had marked me out as a bit of a weirdo it was a bit of a head fuck it was a head fuck Annie (laughs) Um, and I think I I became very obsessed actually with the with the British class system. And that's something that I look at a lot in my novels because I came to view it, again, from an outsider's perspective, where I was like, wow, there mm. are these people who seemed high, seem hidebound by a certain degree of tradition, but who also have all of these unspoken rules about who's a quote-unquote proper kind of person. And it was so different from the daily hugeness that people were dealing with in Northern Ireland of like life and death situations and tribal affiliation and traumatic history. Like that was the daily reality in Ireland. And then to come to England and people are like, oh, like kickers shoes were very trendy, but you had to wear your laces a certain way. You had to spiralize your laces. (laughs) And these things were crucially important. And I was like, wow, that's the freedom to care about such trivial stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, so you did that. Then you went to Cambridge, am I right? Yes. And graduated from Cambridge with a double first in history, which is just like, no, it's incredible. (laughs) Like, I'm interested a lot in, in what you talk about. This idea of the life that you feel like you should have versus the life that you actually have. And we all have it. We all grow up conditioned to believe that there's a certain way that we should live our life and a certain kind of picture of what our life will look like you have it in your head yeah and I'm curious is like when you left uni in Cambridge what did you foresee your life looking like can I preface this by saying that um when you say I went to boarding school in England and then I went to Cambridge and yeah. got a first like I'm I <laughs> hear that and I'm like wow how fucking lucky am I and what am I complaining about but the reason that I'm as you can hear uncomfortable with it is because then someone listening to this podcast might rightly say and what does she know about failure like how dare she be preaching to the rest of us number one I hope I never preach but number two part of the foundational premise of how to fail is that someone's life can look a certain way on the outside and not feel like that on the inside all of which is a long way of bringing me back to answering your question and saying that when I graduated I went into journalism and I'd always dreamed of being a journalist and ultimately a writer so let's tick that box that's great but on a personal level I saw my life in very very traditional boring conventional terms heteronormative terms which I was broadly informed by kind of 1980s rom-coms but I thought I was going to get married have two children and have a terraced house in South London and I thought that was all going to happen by definitely by the time I was in my early 30s and it didn't work out like that and my journalistic career was not straightforward 
And I had a series of monogamous relationships from the age of 19 to the age of 36. And during that time, I was so worried about being broken up with or letting someone down or being seen as yet again the outsider or the person who did something wrong or spoke wrong or said the wrong things that I became an obsessive people pleaser where Mm. I forgot to ask myself the necessary questions about who I actually was and what I actually wanted Mm. and that led me to a point where I got married to someone and it was the wrong person and that marriage started imploding and so that's what I mean when there was a disconnect between Mm. how my life might have appeared on the outside and how it was experiencing it in the inside and I didn't tell anyone about this disconnect because I was so busy trying to pretend to be perfect in case anyone Mm. found me out (laughs) because I I think I felt like an imposter in my own life and I and I know that that's an experience shared by many people especially in your 20s which they're such a transitional decade oh totally yeah what was the point when you realized I am unhappy this isn't working for me because you can go along in the lie yourself for a long time can't you when you don't ask yourself what you want and you don't realize that you don't want the life you're living yes at what point did you realize that I suppose so there was a point where I don't think I realized it but I knew there was something amiss and that's when I was 27 and I was crying before going to work every morning and I was like well that's not great Mm. (laughs) so is that is that a bit of a red flag about my mental health and and I went into therapy for the first time because I knew that there was something awry but I but at that stage I think I thought I'll go into therapy I'll do a 12-week course and that will cure it and it was almost like I was outsourcing my need to look deeper I was like, I'll just do the therapy and then it'll be fine. And so I did that and and it was very helpful, but I did only do it for 12 weeks and then I thought I was fine and I wasn't. I was just delaying the inevitable. Mm. When I truly, truly realized I was unhappy, it was during my first marriage and it was after one particularly gruesome year, 2014, when I'd had two unsuccessful rounds of IVF then I got pregnant naturally, then I had a miscarriage at three months. So at the end of that year, I was- Bless you, what a year, God. It was tough, Annie, thank you, you're so sweet. Again, I think I was quite numb and on autopilot, but by the the end of that year, I was a hormonal wreck. And I I now realize that I was quite numb with sadness. There was a sort of very grim Christmas. It was that Christmas, I think, that I was like, this level of unhappiness, is unsustainable and I need to do something about it. But I didn't at that stage know exactly what was causing it. I just knew I had to right. act on it. Right. And I can imagine the kind of the, the fertility journey, the trying to get pregnant could have been a barrier to realizing that you were actually unhappy in your relationship. You know, yes. if you're getting disappointments there, you can think, oh, it might be because of them rather than the foundational aspect, which is the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a very perceptive thing to say because. <laughs> At the beginning of that year, when I was going through IVF, my second round, I went back into therapy with a different therapist because my reasoning was, if this IVF round doesn't work out, I'll need some support and I'll need some help, which is totally rational reasoning. My brilliant therapist, I think in the first session was like, and how's your marriage? And I was like, great, it's really great. But I think what she saw was someone who needed support that she wasn't getting somewhere that she might have expected to get it. And I found 
that period of therapy in my life really unbelievably helpful and I think that was the point when things started to shift and I started to realize I had a perspective let alone understand what my own perspective was that that my voice was valid Then let's go because this leads, I think, into your adult change. Yeah. So my seismic adult change was getting divorced at the age of Mm. 36. And again, that ties into what we were talking about before, about how I perceived my life was going to be and how it actually turned out. No one walks down the aisle thinking, I'm going to get divorced. Or very, very few people do. And I certainly was wholly committed to that relationship. And I was ashamed at the thought that it was going to fail. I felt terrible shame. I felt that I was going to let so many people down. Obviously, first and foremost, my then husband. But I was also just mortified at the thought that I would have to tell my parents and those people who came to our wedding and who had invested such faith in us. And how was I going to be able to explain it? Because I couldn't even fully explain it to myself. I just knew that... I'd hit a wall and I needed to make a change. And Mm. so I walked out of our marital home in February 2015 and it was definitely the hardest thing I have ever done. And it was also by that stage the only thing I could have done. Looking back on it with the benefit of hindsight, I think it was because of the fertility stuff. I think I realised that having a child was really, really important to me. And if I didn't know anything else about myself, I knew that. And I think that sort of gave me a glimmer of self-confidence or at least a faith in my instinct. And I left and it was devastating. And anyone who has been through a separation and divorce will know what that feels like. And it was also a portal to a different kind of life that I am now so immensely grateful for because it really did open up a new way of seeing the world. And a new way of seeing yourself. Yes, exactly that. I think because I'd I'd sort of done something that had surprised me, I'd shocked myself. I never thought I was going to be a person capable of that, of leaving a marriage. Wow. And so then I was like, oh, wow. So what other things might I not have realized I'm capable of? And and I did stuff like, it was a very, very dramatic year <laughs> because I, yeah. I pitched the idea of going to live in LA to my then editor. I was like, I should be LA correspondent for The Observer. And amazingly, he agreed. And I went for three months and I just pit- and I realized I didn't really need possessions. Like I left with two bags and that was it. And I and I had this extraordinary experience in LA where I was like, oh, LA is a city where lots of people are living out lots of different narratives. It's often a place where people go to write their own stories and to find themselves. And yeah. um, I found that really liberating. And then when I came back, I quit my job and I went freelance. And so oh I, God, I love so, that. so during the course of a year, I'd sort of left my marriage, quit my job, had to find a place to live. And I'd done all of these things and it didn't feel scary. It felt exciting and it felt 
possible. I feel like that happens quite a lot with people once they kind of break that first barrier when it comes to change. Then all the other changes come quite quick and quite easy. Like yeah. it, it's you uh, for me anyway, like in the last couple of years, I can't stop. I'm like, right, what else can I change? Let's <laughs> yes. go. Woo! <laughs> Literally, it, it feels so good, doesn't it? Because you have full agency of your choices and it's like you are captain of your own ship and you're answering to only yourself and it just feels so wonderful. And then you have that, the added bonus of kind of discovering your capabilities, you know, and really kind of getting to know yourself, I suppose, in a whole new light. Definitely. And I think it goes back to what we said at the beginning, which was that there was so much less I was fearful of. Because one of the things I was most fearful of had happened. And so I knew that, that change when it came along could be accompanied by a feeling of panic. And I knew that the panic would eventually subside. So it was this yeah. process of data acquisition, which meant that I I felt that I could throw myself into change and I could take risks. But again, because it was only me, in a way, because I hadn't had a baby, like I didn't have to factor in that. Sure. And yeah. so, so there was this level of freedom where I was like, well, if I'm not able to be a mother right now... I want to be able to make the most of that to make myself feel more accepting of that. And so all of these things came together in yeah. a really stimulating and enlightening way. I do want to ask you, as long as you're comfortable talking about the fertility journey, because I know you speak about it openly, but I don't want to probe. Oh, thank you. Um, but in Magpie, I think I got the most enlightening representation of what it must be like to go through something like that in, in learning about one of the character's journeys in trying to have a baby. And it's so heart-wrenching and so authentic. And, and some of the bits were truly shocking. And I just learned so much. And I know that you wrote that yourself in lockdown in a kind of cathartic mm. exercise. Am I right in saying that? You kind of wanted to write it because of your own experiences? Yes, definitely. The reason I chose to write about it is because I launched the How to Fail podcast. And a few months after that, I wrote a book called How to Fail as well. And in that book, there was a whole chapter entitled How to Fail at Babies. And I wanted to write that because... As I said earlier, when I was going through IVF, I felt very alone and I went to my local bookshop and I tried to find a book about IVF and there weren't any. There was just lots and lots of books about mothers and babies. And so Mm. I wanted to write that chapter for the woman that I then was and for the other people I knew who existed like me. And that's the chapter that I get most messages about to this day. And that's incredibly meaningful to me. But I'd never seen that kind of experience reflected in a novel in the way that I would have liked, which is an accurate way, but also a way I hope that brings understanding to what Mm. couples might go through. When I came to Magpie, I was sort of playing around with various different ideas and I had a conversation with a good friend of mine and she's also a writer and she said, I can only ever write about what's happening in my life right now. So what is it in your life right now that you're thinking about? And by now I was like, you know, 39 and I was like, oh, and I still want to be a mother and what does that mean? And and suddenly I was like, that's what I want to write about. So I'm going to really lean into it. And by the time it had come to kind of really knuckle down and complete the manuscript... I had very sadly had two more miscarriages with my lovely now husband. I'm so sorry, by the way. Thank you, I don't want that just to pass without saying that. Thank you, I appreciate that. And I just felt like 
I'd been through the whole bloody gamut of fertility. Fucking right. Like, I yeah. had IVF, I've had miscarriages, I've had frozen my eggs, I've had operations on my womb, like all sorts. And I was oh like, my God. and I sort of wanted to put that somewhere because I wanted something to exist in that vacuum, in, in the place of an absence where my pregnancy might have been, I wanted to give birth to something else, if that's not stretching a metaphor too far. No, it really isn't. And that's Mm. why Magpie exists. And that's why I'm proud of it in a different way from my other books, Mm. because it is a monument to something. And I said what I wanted to say in it. Mm. And, you know, there's bits that are so heart-wrenching, as I said, just how she was spoken to. This is in the book. And, you know, obviously, I don't know if this is a direct experience of yours, but I know that it's common by male consultants, you know, in the medical industry when you're told your body is not responding to the drugs yeah. as if it's all on you and your body is the flawed thing here rather than the drugs or the prescription of said drugs, things like that. And, and th- this kind of idea of being constantly beaten down and being told that's not just your body is failing in this quest. Yeah. How, you know, how did that aspect of it, you know, the kind of relentless disappointments, how does that change you? How do you withstand mm. that? That was said to me. Um, and I've never been asked how I withstood that. So that's why I'm thinking about it because at the time I accepted it. And it was actually only when I was relaying that particular phrase, like you're failing to respond to the drugs to my friend Fran, that she said, oh, hang on a second. Maybe you're not failing to respond to the drugs. (laughs) Maybe the drugs are failing you. And Mm. it was a truth bomb moment. This light bulb Mm. went off in my head and I was like, wow, I'm basically being gaslit yeah by a male dominated establishment who well none of them will have an experience of what it's like to miscarriage let alone menstruate and there are some amazing compassionate medical professionals out there and i have met subsequently so many of them and i also know that the field of fertility in medicine is really changing for the better which i'm so grateful for yeah but but i did have this experience of thinking not only do i feel i'm failing but there's an added level of almost like moral judgment coming on me from people who I've been taught to respect, who have an enormous amount of power in a, in a medical situation mm. where it's practitioner and patient. It changed me as a person. It radicalized me, actually. I wow. feel like more and more radical the older I get as a woman because there's just more and more stuff that I notice as being unfair and there's more and more stuff that I think to question or that I'm encouraged to question by my younger sisters in this fight like and so actually weirdly I found it empowering because I felt empowered to speak out about it rather than to stay silent but I only think that happened because of the change we're discussing we're discussing yeah where suddenly I was like oh hang on it doesn't have to be like this I don't Mm. have to live in a heteronormative world where I'm told that I'm failing my biological mm. imperative as a woman. Like, oh, I can mm. choose to be something else and to think yeah. differently about it. I also have internalized that sense of failure where I'll sometimes feel just really emotional about yeah. where this particular journey has taken me. <laughs> and I've realized that that's okay. And that's a form of grief that sometimes it does come up when you least expect it. Like recently, when I had my, uh, my second COVID vaccine, and I'm sure lots of women had this experience. My menstrual cycles were uh, sure. really messed yeah. about. And with the second vaccine, my period was two weeks late, which is very, very rare for me. 
And at a time when you're trying for a baby and it hasn't been straightforward, like that is really difficult to handle oh, because God. you think, oh, maybe, oh my gosh, that can you imagine? And you allow yourself to believe it. And then obviously it doesn't happen. And it felt like so cruel. <laughs> I was like shaking my fist at the sky, being like, I get it. I get it. You oh, don't need to put me through God. this. And like moments like that, I definitely think I turn that sadness inwards and I'm getting much better at acknowledging it and then processing it but that's been you know a a decade in the making I'm also very interested in the role of the the male partner I mean this is assuming that it's a heterosexual relationship which it has been in your case and was in, in the book as well but um you've obviously had experience with different men different partners and, and going through I'm the same thing. I'm a real thing. slut. No, <laughs> I know that's not what you're saying. <laughs> Very experienced with many different men. But, yes. but like what I'm trying to get at is like yeah. it's fucking all on the woman. It's all on the woman and her body to mess up and fuck up and not get it right. And it's like mm. it, it just makes me mad. And, and you know no matter how well intentioned the partner is it should be a collective problem between the two of you. And I'm sure it is emotionally but it just feels so like another really unfair burden that a woman has to bear the discomfort of this journey, you know? Definitely. You know, I feel so blessed now that I am with the person I'm with because he has been so emotionally in tune and supportive right. with our miscarriages yeah. that it absolutely feels like our shared grief. And I think that it's it's incredibly difficult for a lot of men seeing their partners go through something that yeah. is that their partner has the physical experience i mean it's so weird how many parallels there are with childbirth but when you see your partner go through something physical that is so intense and comes with either so much trauma if it's a miscarriage or so much joy if it's birth or a bit of both if it's birth because i know many women have gone through really complicated births Although you can witness it as a partner, you can't fully understand it unless you have inhabited that physicality. And I think yeah. that that sometimes makes the grieving process more difficult because mm. there's an absence piled upon an absence there. So I have a lot of sympathy for men in that respect. And I also feel that other male partners sometimes, because they think, well, there's no point, like there's no way I can understand it. So there's no point almost in trying, will distance themselves and compartmentalize themselves. And that can be a very, very lonely place for a woman to inhabit. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk um, about another fabulous quote. Just as my mother's generation fought for their daughter's rights to have a career, I'm fighting for a woman's right not to have daughters and not to be judged lacking because of it. I'm fighting for her right to be acknowledged, valued, heard and not treated as less than simply because she's childless. I want to drop a mic there or something or just like press it. I just want to hear your voice reading out my words for a really long time. You just do it so beautifully. Will you narrate all Available for audio books, Elizabeth, next time. But yeah, so like society's like changing perceptions of motherhood you know and Mm. this is something you've been shouting about from the rooftops rightly fucking so this idea of 
people being perceived as less because they don't have children or this assumption that people will want children in the first place. I mean, I know that you do, but a lot of yeah. people choose very yes. early on that that's not for them. Yeah. Talk to me anyway about what you've kind of noticed over the years and if you think that's changed for the better. I, really. Oh my gosh, I think it's massively changed for the better and I'm so happy to be a tiny part of that change. The fact that there are so many brilliant women now in the public eye who talk about being child-free rather than childless, who have fulfilled, empowered, successful lives and who have never regretted that decision is Mm. a joy to behold. And I also want there to be space for women like me who it hasn't happened for, but who still want that in their future in some form. And I feel really lucky to live in an era where so many different forms of parenthood are possible that I have a lot of children in my life and I know that there are a lot of ways I can get to meet my child eventually. That it doesn't have to be straightforward. It doesn't have to be conventional. And actually, isn't it better if it's not? Like given everything that I've said about how I've come to know myself through changes and failures and unconventional outcomes like in a way it makes perfect sense to me that I am going to wage this battle and get to the end and it will all feel worthwhile because of the complexities involved in a Mm. way so I want to fight for that as well and also space for those men and women who end up not having children but they've tried very hard. I think, again, society has become so much better at acknowledging that kind of grief. And it is wonderful to see certain companies introducing paid sick leave for miscarriage. It is Mm. really great that changes are being made in the NHS so that now, you know, at the moment, you have to have three miscarriages before you're referred to a specialist. Things like that are changing because of conversations like this. God. And and that's why I will yeah. always continue to talk about it. And also I continue to talk about it because it's the antidote to shame. And I want to attack yeah. the notion that anyone ever needs to feel shame because of the condition of their biological reproductive system. I mean, that's ridiculous. You're so much more than your ovaries or your testes that doesn't define you so I think things are looking much brighter than they were you know I wrote how to fail in 2019 like even the last three years there's been a lot of really beneficial change and that's largely because of people like the Duchess of Sussex or Chrissy Teigen Mm. talking about their miscarriages like that would not have happened Mm. 10 years ago yeah so true And it definitely wouldn't have happened for our mother's generation. And so I'm, although I'm enormously sorry for every single individual loss, I'm really glad to live in a time where we're talking about it. Yeah. I also want to say that I'm not anti-mothers. God, no. (laughs) I love mothers. And some of my best (laughs) friends are mothers. (laughs) And I should also say, I want to fight for the space for like mothers to be mothers And also not to have to be defined by that and just to be the kind of women they want to be in all their magnificent complexity. So I also wanted to say that. And I love your writing on that as well. Like I really, I just love the fact that we are having honest and funny and self-aware conversations about 
so much stuff that as women we've had to sweep under the carpet for so long. Yeah, it's brilliant. What I'm curious about is how you talk to yourself about your own fertility journey. You know, you're so open and generous when you talk to the world about it. And, you know, maybe this is fucking none of my business, in which case you can say that and that's fine. But I wonder, have you come up with a way of talking that you have figured out works for you to yourself? Mm. Oh, my gosh, that's such a beautiful question. But fuck I... off, it's none of your business, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Can you I imagine? Can you yeah. imagine? Um, how I talk to myself about this in particular but about everything is extremely self-critical and it makes me sad to say that out loud because it shouldn't be and it's definitely not what I would want anyone else to do but I think some of that internalized sense of failure that I was discussing earlier has kind of made itself felt in the way that I criticize myself and that's something that I'm working on in therapy I find being compassionate to myself quite tricky right I have got better at it because I think for a long time I refused to allow myself permission to grieve what I had lost because in the hierarchy of awful things I didn't place miscarriage that high because my reasoning was the baby wasn't born um they were all in the first three months like all of these things that actually really diminish your own pain and I would never say to someone else um and so I didn't allow myself to think of those miscarriages as babies and that now makes me sad to look back on because I denied my own pain and really recently I made the decision that I was going to buy something that would symbolize physically those three pregnancies I found this beautiful stone carving on Instagram by a woman called the stone carver and I bought it and I put it in our garden and honestly it was such a small thing to have done but it's had huge resonance for me because It exists and every time I see it, it reminds me in a joyful way of like hope and those three spirits and and I will sometimes sit in the garden and just be close to that. And that's really helped unlock something in me so that I feel like I have the space now to be more positive and to attach more hope to the journey. And so my goal for 2022 is absolutely to like be more positive and replace anxiety and fear with a level of excitement. And I know that I can do it because I've done other things. So that's Mm. my cat's tail. (laughs) That's my other fur child. Um, I've just made a decision that I I need to work out how it can be done rather than grieving the fact it hasn't been so far. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It feels constructive and yeah. healthy and, and it's good to be able to move towards something. Yes. And also I can imagine that stone carving, just the very existence of it is taking everything out of there and putting it into something tangible. Exactly. Like it's so effective. Like Yeah, it's exactly, I couldn't have put it better myself. 
Elizabeth, the last change, the change that you would still like to make for yourself moving forwards, please. Yes. So I thought about this one a lot because I was like, obviously, I should say world peace. But just <laughs> yeah, but that's, <laughs> take that's it obvious. as red. Take yeah. it as red. Um, world peace and an end to climate change. But for <laughs> me personally, the change I'd like to see for myself is a shift from doing to being. So mm. I, like many women feel that I am only worthwhile if I'm extremely busy and doing things. Oh and my I God. Think, yeah. Are you in I, my head? I can that see a hard relate. Absolutely my problem, yeah. <laughs> and I think some of that is related to the fact of, well, if I'm not a parent, I've got to kind of explain my presence on the planet, if that doesn't sound mm. too massively narcissistic, but it's almost like, well, I've got to like, have a reason for being for claiming the space like I need to Mm. work I need to do stuff I need to leave stuff behind I need to write books I need to create stuff and I need to be approved of by people and I don't want to feel like that anymore I would love to feel that I have worth just by being and that Mm. I don't need the approval of others for there to be worth in the first place. And I think I'm in a stage of transition with that, but I'm not there yet and it's a daily struggle. Mm. I mean, you can rewind in an amateur psychological way all the way back to joining new schools as a child and trying to gain approval from people and fit in and oh, yeah. all of that. It makes total sense. Yeah, because I think it, it felt like survival when I was younger. Mm. I need to be accepted. Mm. And I think Mm. it's kind of carried on into my adult life in a sometimes unhelpful way. But sometimes it's immensely, it like gives me an inordinate degree of drive. Like it's fuel at the same time. But I just, I think especially post pandemic when for me work filled every available space, I really now need to just dial it down a bit. (laughs) Just calm down a bit. (laughs) Hey, listen, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your generosity. I I really appreciate it. Oh, Annie, thank you so much for everything that you do and everything that you are, more importantly. (laughs) And for those beautiful, insightful, kind questions. And I, I really loved our chat. Thank you. What a woman so grateful to Elizabeth Day for her very generous and very articulate and smart and thought-provoking answers in today's podcast. Elizabeth's book Magpie is out now in hardback. It is excellent. I really highly recommend it. Also, How to Fail the Podcast. You probably already know about it, but if you don't, it's well worth a listen. She has such a brilliant array of guests and conversations on there. I would like to say that if you liked this episode of Changes, you may also like Davina McCall uh, speaking on this podcast all about menopause at the end of last year. She told this really uh, emotional story about her childhood and going to a hypnotherapist and speaking to herself as a younger person and being able to kind of move on with her life. This is only a couple of years ago this happened. And then we talk a lot about her experiences of menopause and how isolating they were and how they set her on this course to shout about the menopause to the whole world and make sure that everyone is as aware as possible of the kind of workings and machinations of menopause to women's bodies, what we go through and how that can be helped and all of that. So Davina is just a complete inspiration. 
So do go check out that episode at the end of last year on changes. And of course, let us know what you thought of this one and please share the podcast around. If you're a fan of changes, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. And I will be back next Monday with the legend that is Damon Albarn. Changes is produced by Louise Mason. See you next time.